We're very pleased to be joined on the line now by Elizabeth Humphreys. Liz, we've spoken to you before about the poorly understood history of neoliberalism in Australia. A lot of people, I suspect particularly people under the age of 30 who weren't around in the 1980s, uh, would perhaps reasonably assume privatisation, economic deregulation, the casualisation of labour, essentially the centering of profit maximisation at the heart of the body politic, are ideas and policies first promulgated by the conservative wing of politics. But as you outline in your book, How Labor Built Neoliberalism, Australia's Accord, the Labor Movement and the Neoliberal Project, that's in fact not the case at all. How responsible then is the Labor government of 1983 to 1996, led first by Bob Hawke and then Paul Keating, for the dominance of neoliberal ideas in Australian politics, a dominance which of course continues to this day? Thanks for having me on, Alex. Yeah, that is the case. Like in Australia... How neoliberalism was introduced um, had a bit of a different path to how mostly we are told neoliberalism advances. We're told that it's um, right-wing or authoritarian governments like the Pinochet dictatorship in Chile or uh, Ronald Reagan in the US or Margaret Thatcher in the UK that were sort of got elected or, you know, or took over in a coup and then implemented a particular type of... Um, economic reform. But of course, it, they didn't just introduce it because they liked those ideas. Um, the ideas were driven by the material circumstances of the 1970s, which um, for the global north and good sections of the global south were kind of littered with recessions and a period of um, rolling economic crises. Um, in Australia, when we were in that same sort of situation, I think we have to think about the practical uh, the practical situation that that Hawke government got elected into, and they're looking around for how can we actually deal with this economic crisis that had been going for a decade. Um, by then, there's rising unemployment, um, high inflation, and they're, they're looking for solutions to those. And actually, what they end up doing is in adopting many of the same solutions as those other more. Um, right-wing or conservative governments. Now, as I say, we've spoken to you before about the history of Labor's introduction of neoliberal ideas more extensively, and people can check out that interview on our SoundCloud archive. But let's uh, move the focus now to the destructive legacy that that Labor government left behind. I wanted to focus particularly on the impact on the Labor movement union membership and strike activity remain at historically low levels and many people left and right argue unions no longer have the social power they once had. How much of this dramatic decline can be attributed to the Labor Party or specifically that Labor government in the 80s and 90s, which after all is the very political force which uh, had its origins as the parliamentary voice of the Labor movement? It's difficult to quantify um but what seems to be clear from the research and economic modelling done by a number of academics is that over and above the decline in unionism and the changes internationally and in how um, industries were reshaped, the accord process between the trade unions and the Labor government was responsible to some level for um, the decline in union membership. This is debated. 
Um, Sorry to interrupt, Liz, but perhaps just briefly explain what the accord is for listeners who aren't familiar with that. Oh, sure. When Hawke got elected, there was an agreement between the unions and the Labor Party, which was really around um, macroeconomic policy. In simple terms, the unions agreed they would limit their wage claims to inflation and the Labor government um, agreed they would increase social spending and um, increase the social wage through particularly Medicare and superannuation. And the unions had to agree they wouldn't take any further strike action. So that process goes on for 13 years and there's a real impact. Um, well, there's a... There's a there's an identifiable impact on the decline of the number of people who are members of unions, but I, I'm not sure that that really gets to the nub of the problem. When you come to an agreement with a government or a state to not take any industrial action and to make all your decisions about what wages are going to happen into that centralised national process between high-level officials and the government of the day what you remove is the organising that happens on the ground in trade unions, in workplaces, um, the kind of struggle that is the bread and butter of winning better conditions and wages at work, but also the bread and butter that holds together a labour movement. And if you just suddenly stop that for 13 years, you can't just restart it by deciding you're going to do that because all the delegate networks, all the um, learned skills, um, they, they don't exist in the same way before. And 13 years is a long time when there's dramatic economic restructuring going on in the country. So um, sections of the economy like manufacturing, blue-collar work that had been highly unionised and ha uh, had really um, proud histories of fighting for um, collective wage increases was declining and new industries and new types of jobs in new regions of the country were increasing and they had lower levels of industrial action and as we know unionization the number of people who are who are members and the sort of industrial action we take is directly connected to wage outcomes the current secretary of the australian council of trade unions sally mcmanus has been heralded by a lot of people in the labor movement and the left as a breath of fresh air she defiantly said on national television early on in her tenure that unionists should be prepared to break unjust laws, and she stood by those comments. And yet there's a strange cognitive dissonance in the way she and indeed many other union leaders reflect on the parlous position that trade unions are in, and you've just very eloquently outlined some of the the particulars of that parlous position. I, for instance, have personally seen Sally McManus, and this was at a May Day rally in Fremantle last year, praise the Hawke government while literally in the same breath condemning neoliberal economics. Why then do trade union leaders like Sally McManus continue to wed themselves to a party which has demonstrably betrayed the interests of workers? I can't speak for Sally herself, but I think um, there's a couple of things going on um, with trade union leaders and um, progressive members um, as a Labor Party. For many of them, they think they have to defend the Hawke and Keating era in order to argue to the public that they will be good economic managers. The Labor Party made a decision that they would sort of throw Whitlam's economic legacy under the bus. They would agree that he was wasteful with his spending and he couldn't deal with the economic crisis. And then they want to defend the Hawke and Keating era as 
as good as we could get in those circumstances for the majority of Australians. Um, so even though wages went back, what they would argue is if there was no social contract and we didn't do the things we did, things would have been worse. I think that leads to a situation when the ALP wants to enter into an election that they want to argue that Hawk and Keating are the positive legacy, that they were the true reformers of the Australian macroeconomy and they did it on the basis of social justice. Now, I disagree with that position, but I think that's why um, people like Sally McManus have to maintain a position of both defending Hawke and Keating whilst also um, critiquing um, the sorts of neoliberal reforms um, that were introduced in, under them and continued under Howard and other governments. Liz Humphreys, there are so many more aspects of this history worth exploring and so many more questions we could ask you and perhaps get you on another time. But just finally, in your view, how can the left broadly defined and the labour movement move beyond this seemingly undefeatable paradigm of neoliberal politics, which has dominated the Australian political landscape and indeed the international landscape for so many years now. It's quite uh, striking that even the, the, the new climate strike movement, or at least elements of it, has proven itself vulnerable to accepting market-based solutions such as carbon taxes, which is but one of many examples we could cite of neoliberal ideas infecting even uh, progressive activist groups and causes. I think the idea that markets can solve these problems or we can use markets for positive outcomes are fairly hegemonic. Um, the carbon tax is a great example. Capitalism creates this um, global in, um, environmental crisis and the profit motive is at the centre of that um, and yet people want to use those same markets and price signals and the profit motive in order to fix that. It, it makes no sense to me and I think we need to be able to have a... Um, more sophisticated conversation where we believe we can win people um, to a different way of dealing with social problems, economic problems and problems of social justice. Um, in the end, these sorts of changes can only be won um, through social forces like building social movements and through, um, you know, uh, organised labour and trade unions. Um, you, you said at the start, I, I guess, that uh, trade unions had were not so significant in terms of their level of social weight. This is absolutely true. Now only 11% of people are members of trade unions. Before the Hawke government, it was 50%. But the trade unions do have um, more social weight than any other progressive force in Australia at this point in time. And that's why trade unionists like myself and others need to win an argument within the trade union movement that a different kind of um, approach can be taken to the environmental crisis, but also a different approach can be taken to the sorts of social justice issues we see around us. Um, you know, it was only 30 years ago that the ALP trade unions and many left people had policies that were about much more open immigration policy about um, funding unemployment benefits to a much greater level to what we would call a living wage. It may seem like things are intractable and this is where we've always been, but it's not the case. 
Um, for me, the biggest thing we need to do is build an independent trade union movement that is concerned with its own interests and not joining with governments in order to manage capitalism um, in the way we, uh, the unions did in the 80s. And an independent trade union with its own sense of how it could fight for a better country and a better globe has to be at the centre of those um, trying, to, trying to deal with the present problems um, uh, internationally.